Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Football is back, and BetOnline remains your number one source for all your football betting needs this season. You'll find the latest odds, matchup info, player news, and game trends. And as your continued source for all sports wagering info, BetOnline features live betting, free contests, live scores, and giveaways all season long. Always the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports and events like MLB, MMA, tennis, boxing, and even golf. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. BetOnline, where the game starts. Hello and welcome everybody. This is the California Sports Lawyer Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Evans. As you might have noticed, we rebranded the podcast from the Believe in Sports Law podcast to the California Sports Lawyer podcast. Just thought it'd be a little bit easier to uh, recognize the pod and um, recognize the brand that um, that folks have, have come uh, to know and that uh, I've built for the last uh, 10 years or so. But uh, always appreciate you listening in. Uh, for this episode, we have a wonderful guest with us, Whitney Williams, who is an attorney employment attorney in Los Angeles and they're the Littler uh, law firm, which is a very big law firm, very well known for its employment law representation of some of the biggest companies in the world. But she was uh, kind enough to join us. And uh, so sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Her focus areas are discrimination and harassment, wage and hour and leaves of, leave of, leaves of absence and disability accommodation. Um, again, she focuses her practice on labor and employment matters. Prior to joining the law firm, she was a judicial extern. Um, and then uh, she also was involved with the uh, Black Law Students Association, the Sport and Entertainment Law Society, and was treasurer of Outlaw. Uh, she was a law clerk for Fox Sports in the Business and uh, Legal Affairs Department, a legal intern for SAG-AFTRA, which is the a uh, union for actors and actresses and um, a few other groups of people in Hollywood. And then um, uh, she has uh, some background. She went to Pepper Pepperdine Law School, so go Waves. And uh, she wrote for the Law Review there. So, uh, And she also has her certificate in entertainment, media, and sports law from Pepperdine. So Whitney, welcome in, and thanks for uh, giving us your time today. Well, I'm uh, happy to be here and talk to everyone. Thanks for having me. Of course. So Whitney and I, it's sort of cool. We met recently at a networking event and uh, I figured she'd be perfect to, to bring in here. So um, let's maybe start a little more broadly and uh, from, so obviously I've given your bio, but maybe talk a little bit about um, your background in the sense of how you got to where you are today. Uh, and then we can get into more, some more specific sort of employment law uh, questions. Sure. So I feel like my path to law school was not um, like 
normal in the sense that I didn't know that I was going to go to law school, like from the beginning. Um, I started at Pepperdine. I went to Pepperdine for undergrad as well. And so I started at Pepperdine as a bio major and I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. And I was uh, a little surprised when I realized how much work that required, <laughs> uh, particularly when it came to like science and math. And I was like, you know, I took, I took my first semester, did not do well at all, got the worst grades I've ever gotten in my life. And I was like, you know, maybe this isn't for me. So um, I switched to business administration and then they put me in calculus. And I said, you know what? I don't think this is for me either. So maybe I'm going to go to law school. Why not? Um, I switched my major again to um, political science when I was a sophomore at Pepperdine and decided that, uh, yeah, no, it, yeah, exactly. Um, and so I decided that I was going to be a political science major, do the law school thing. Um, and yeah, so when I um, was deciding between law schools, it was pretty much down to Pepperdine or Loyola. And I um, got the same, same scholarship for both. And I just really felt like I loved being out in Malibu. I had like a community out there. I'd lived on campus all four years. I played basketball at Pepperdine. So I was super familiar with a lot of the staff. The athletic director at Pepperdine used to be the dean up at the law school. So he wrote me a letter of recommendation. And I was just really kind of close with a lot of um, people up at the law school. I worked up there when I was in undergrad. And so, um, yeah, I just felt like Pepperdine was kind of home for me. So I went to Pepperdine for law school's three years. Um, Pepperdine offers a two-year kind of what is it? A two-year, I don't know what it's called, not an advanced program, but it's rushed. It's not rushed. <laughs> you do year-round for two years. And so that's another option. Accelerated. There we go. That's the word. <laughs> um, thank you. Love it. They have, they have an accelerated program. And but I did the three-year program and I just really felt like that gave me the opportunity to do internships throughout my summers as opposed to taking, you know, more classes during the summer and stuff like that. So um, I didn't work my first year of law school. It's really not recommended because there's, you're really, it's like a huge adjustment. Law school is, uh, requires you to be really disciplined. And so, um, I'm, but I meant like being an athlete, I felt like I was already pretty good at time management and pretty good at, uh, you know, priority setting and stuff like that. Um, so I didn't work my first year. And then my second year, um, I don't think I worked. Oh, I worked over the summer. I worked for a judge down at the central district, which is the um, federal courthouse downtown. I worked for the last judge to be appointed by Barack Obama. So that was pretty cool. And he's also a Pepperdine alum. His name is um, Andre Barat. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to kind of sit in on some actual cases that were happening, trials, I mean, that were happening. Um, and I sat in on a Title Seven case, um, which I'm sorry, a Title a Title Two case, which is ADA, um, Americans with Disabilities accommodations stuff like that, and it kind of lends itself to employment law in the sense that employers have to be in compliance with an ADA in all in all ways, shapes, and form. Um, you know, from ramps at their buildings to making sure their websites are accessible, all of that sort of stuff. So once I was working for the judge, I kind of realized that this was an area that interested me. And um, 
in law school, there's a pro where there's this thing called law review. Uh, Jeremy mentioned it. And so you have to do, if you're not like, you know, like top 25 students in your class, then you have to do a uh, write on assignment. And I did a write on assignment about um, that's where Title VII came in. And it was about protections under um, California law in terms of um, protected classes. And there's there's a bunch of protected classes, age, race, national origin, gender, sex, and most recently sexual orientation. And that was the one that I was kind of, that I was assigned to work on um, talking about discrimination in the sense of sexual orientation. I did that. I got accepted to law review and part of law review is you have to draft a 40 page paper on a topic completely of your choice. And I had the privilege of having a phone call with um, Dan Grigsby, who's the general counsel for the Lakers. And I'd asked him like, what should I do? How should I, how can I show that I am dedicated to sports and how can I weave in sports, but also weave in employment law? Because I think I kind of like that. Um, Dan recommended that I go into employment law one, Two, he told me that I need to find a way to write about the two of them in my law review article so that I can have a talking point sort of thing um, because everyone wants to work in sports. So you really have to find a way to distinguish yourself. Um, so I ended up writing about whether it was legal for Trump to influence the NFL, uh, the NFL being a private entity. And it was kind of in Trump in his capacity as as a part of the executive branch of the government. Um, it is not legal for government officials to influence public companies, uh, or I'm sorry, private companies and or public companies. And the NFL um, being along those lines, I was able to weave in Colin Kaepernick. And so it kind of made it fun for me. You know, if you're going to write 40 pages about something, it better be interesting. So um, that was really fun to do. I learned a lot and it was kind of a hot topic at the time. Um, then I had the opportunity to work for SAG-AFTRA, and uh, while it's not sports, it was still intertwined with sports and entertainment, and um, I was able to work in the legal department there, where I, when the actors felt that they were, um, you know, were, didn't, didn't get paid correctly, or something was going on on set that, you know, was against the uh, union rules, stuff like that, we would go to an, an arbitration, which is pretty much a lawsuit. And it's pretty much like a trial, but there's just like one, it's decided by one person who's not a judge. They may be like a retired judge or something like that. Anyway, um, we would present cases on behalf of the talent and, you know, do our best to represent them. Then I worked for Fox Sports uh, over in Century City and worked in the legal department there. That was really fun. And it was kind of more of what Jeremy does in the sense that it was contracts, templates, um, negotiating deals, and but it was all internal for Fox Sports. So for example, like college football, um, Shannon Sharp, we had talent like that. Um, so that was also really cool. And I got to see at SAG-AFTRA, what it was like to be kind of an advocate, but then at Fox Sports, it was more transactional. So I got a little bit of both. And then I came, I worked at a law firm also during my uh, second summer of law school and did employment law there because I knew that that was kind of going to be my avenue into sports, working in employment law. 
And um, then after law school, I started working at the firm I'm at now. I graduated in 2020, took the bar in October of 2020, passed in January. That's when the results came out and started working at the law firm. And so that's that's how I got here. Love it. Love it. So on the sort of employment piece, um, and actually before we move into that, I want to get into a little bit of maybe um, just in case, you know, folks want to know about sort of law school in terms of how to get in and uh, the process, maybe talk a little bit about uh, that in terms of the LSAT and GPA and some of the important things uh, that schools look at just in case. Yeah. So when I was going to, when I was applying, the GRE was not acceptable as a, as an exam for law school that has since changed. And so now you can either take the LSAT or the GRE. I probably still would have done the LSAT because there's less math, but um, the GRE, you can take the GRE as well. So um, the LSAT, I took a prep course. I took the Princeton review, which is also what I took to, for college as well. And some of you may be familiar They also have prep courses for the LSAT. So I did one of those and I really feel like I'm just going to really harp on discipline and how important it is to really just like buckle down and do what you have to do. I was in Cancun on my 21st birthday in an LSAT class (laughs) on my laptop in the hotel room, got that done and then went out and, you know, did my thing. But I really just feel like you have to be disciplined and um, otherwise you know, that's, that's the name of the game in my opinion. So I did the LSAT. I took it twice. Um, I did better the first time. So I went with that. My GPA was not as high as it probably could have been. Again, I did not do well my first semester, but I really felt like my connections, um, my score, my LSAT score was fine. It was good. I think people are, you guys are getting smarter and smarter. So things, the average median is much higher, I think, than it, now than it was when I was doing it, I don't know, 2017, I think, 2016 maybe. Um, But yeah, so combination of definitely connections, definitely have to have some sort of academic record and then, you know, just find a way to distinguish yourself. And honestly, being in a sport management program is a a great way. So, um, because a lot of people are just coming straight from law, straight from undergrad, you know, so yeah. No, I appreciate that. And I will tell you that um, on the MBA side, if anybody ever had an interest in getting an MBA, if you have your law degree, most law, most business schools will waive the GRE or the GMAT in, uh, anyway. So something to keep in mind. But again, you got to go to law school to get that. So does it really make sense <laughs> to go to law school to get the the uh, the GMAT waived? I guess if you really want to go to get go to business school, maybe it makes sense. Let's move to employment law. Talk to us a little bit about your practice. What are you working on? Um, you know, who are your clients in the general sense? Sure. Give, us, give, give us some flavor in that. Yeah. So my law firm specializes in management side, def- employment and labor defense. So um, it's essentially pretty much a lot of HR stuff on the litigation side in terms of litigation, meaning like taking things to trial, whereas transactional is kind of more deal work and stuff like that. So on the litigation side, it's a lot of HR-based work. Uh, we work really close with a lot of HR departments of like pretty much a lot. I don't want to say all of like the major, you know, four to 500 companies, but it's we represent a lot of um, pretty much a lot of the big companies that um, 
have ongoing. Uh, we also work with mom and pops. And that's kind of one of the benefits of our firm is that we can do smaller business. We work with smaller businesses as well as bigger businesses. Um, and so, for example, if an employee sues their employer saying they were harassed, discriminated against on any of the protected classes that I mentioned earlier, like age, race, sex, that sort of thing, then we defend against the lawsuit. Um, we That's kind of the litigation side. When it comes to labor, we do... Um, we kind of help with union. Well, we don't help the unionization efforts, but we kind of help the employers manage that. So for example, there's been a lot in the news about Starbucks and their employees unionizing. And so we will draft petitions opposing and stuff like that. They operate in a bunch of states around the country. And so I was helping them prepare um, a multi-state chart that listed all of the requirements that they must post like in their in their employee lounge or like around the business and each state is different and you have to follow federal law. You have to follow state law, local law. So they want just a one-stop shop of what do I need to post in Connecticut, West Virginia, California, Texas, Rhode Island, New York, Georgia, all of that. And so I put together um, a chart for them. Um, We also handle claims with the Department of Labor Standards Enforcement. So for example, if an employee doesn't get paid on time or they get paid late or they don't get paid at their vacation time, or most recently there's been a lot of COVID, um, COVID claims, people are entitled to 80 hours of COVID pay um, like in the calendar year for 2021 and stuff like that. So employers, for example, like an employer is not supposed to ask you for proof that you have COVID. And so if they do, and then they reject you, that's illegal. And so we do a lot of that stuff, a lot of advice and counsel, especially surrounding COVID. Um, yeah, that's pretty much employers come to us for really anything and everything. Sometimes they'll ask us, hey, we're about to terminate our CEO. How do you think we should do it? What paperwork do we need to have? Who needs to be in the room? Um, that sort of thing. Or you know, we're doing a bunch of layoffs. Who do we need to tell? There's a certain rules that are triggered if you're going to lay off a certain percentage of your company all at once. We have to make sure that it's not all the women or it's, you know, not only the people who are above 45. And so stuff like that. Right. Yeah, that's pretty much it. No, that's good. That's good. Um, tell us a little bit about California's an at-will employment state, right? And so Tell us a little bit about at-will employment, and then we'll get into uh, what an employee versus an independent contractor is. Yeah. So like Jeremy said, California is an at-will state, which means the employer can terminate you. There's there's either at-will or there's for cause. And for cause means like there must be like a documented reason, you know, X, Y, Z. It's a lot more restrictive, um, whereas the at-will employment is pretty much they can terminate you for any reason. It seems it seems maybe more lenient in theory, but in reality, employees just say, yeah, well, I may be at will, but you terminated me because I'm a, a man. And that's illegal based on California law. Um, so it's kind of like just something people kind of throw in there. I would say employers will always put in their employee handbook. Like this is your, and in the offer letter, like your employment's at will, 
you know, we can terminate you without cause at any point for any reason, but there's still lawsuits. So. Right. No, because yeah, I, I, yeah, it's to your point. Lawsuits still happen, yeah. even regardless of um, of what the law is. Because I think sometimes people try to argue the facts versus uh, versus the law, but that's maybe not always so successful. And then tell us a little bit about employee versus independent contractor, and maybe some of the important differences between um, between those two classes, if you will. Yeah. Um, so. There's a couple of reasons why an employer would want to classify someone as an independent contractor versus an employee. Um, and the difference between the two, so an employee, an independent contractor is someone who um, technically is not, they're, they're not a part of the company. They're maybe their own sole practitioner and then the company will hire them for a specific reason. And there's, um, the cases case law has like different tests that they use to determine whether someone is in fact an employee or an independent contractor. Um, some of the things they consider are like, did the, did the company give the employee a uniform? Did the company um, tell the employee what hours they had to work or did the, did the person just get the, was it more of a, Hey, we need you here from Monday through Friday, nine to five, or was it more of, Hey, just get the work done by this date, um, on your own calendar. You tell us how long it's going to take, or did the, um, independent contractor show up with, uh, sorry. So did the independent contractor show up with all of the tools that they need, or did they show up empty handed? And then the employer gave them all of those things. Um, let's see, does the, is the job that the person was hired for the purpose of the company? So, or, or is that not really what the company does? And so that's why they hired this outside person. So things like that are considered when determining whether someone is an employee, an independent contractor. And so you, Adrian asked about a W2 and a 1099. So when someone is an independent contractor, um, then they file like a 1099 form. I mean, it, it actually can, sometimes it, it depends because another factor that they consider is like, was the employee paid on a regular basis on the same rate as all, or not the employee, was the person paid on the same basis as all of the other employees or um, were they not? So that's another factor that's considered. Uh, 1099 is more for tax purposes and what my firm is super strict about. We do not do tax work because that's just not our specialty. Um, but from what I understand is that the 1099 is for independent contractors who at the end of the year will file a 1099. Taxes aren't taken out regularly in the way that um, employees on their paycheck, you know, you'll see federal tax, state tax. For independent contractors, at the end of the year, they'll file a 1099 form and then the government will say, okay, this is how much you owe. So, yeah. Okay. No, that's really helpful. And then if we can, can we talk a little bit about um, sort of AB5 and then the, the referendum that came later on in terms of um, AB5 was sort of this bill and correct me if I'm wrong, um, you know, since you're the expert in this space, but AB5 was sort of legislation that California passed 
the legislature passed and the governor signed um, that in a very sort of simplistic sense made it so that Uber and other sort of delivery services um, would, would have a more difficult time classifying drivers as independent contractors and moving them more to the employee employer side uh, or employee side. And of course, this, this was based on a case. And then eventually the, there was a referendum that came back and sort of took some of those back. But please correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're correct. And um, I was just going to mention that I guess I forgot to touch on it earlier. One of the reasons why an employer would not want to classify someone as an employee is because then they don't have to give them benefits. They don't have to give them the health care. They don't have to provide paid time off. They don't have to do all of those things. Whereas, you know, if you work for Uber and if that's your nine to five, then yeah, you're going to want benefits and stuff like that. So um, yes, AB5 definitely did make it more difficult. And we did do some work with um, with Uber around that sense, definitely had to, on the back end after AB5 was passed, I didn't personally work on it, but I know a lot of people in my firm have, um, helping Uber reclassify employees, kind of redo their business model because it completely changed their revenue in the sense that, okay, now we have to, now we have to provide healthcare to all all these people and we have to subsidize that. And um, also one of the reasons why an employer wouldn't want to classify someone as an employee is that as an independent contractor, the employer is not responsible, not, not in the same way. Uh, The employer is not responsible in the same way for the actions that you take when you're in the course of your employment. Um, In California, employers are strictly liable for the actions of their employees that are carried out during the course and scope of their employment. For example, if the manager, you know, assaults someone, punches punches someone in the face, the person is likely going to not only sue the manager, but also sue the company. Why? Because the company has a lot of money. And the company will be responsible for that if the person was a manager or a supervisor. So now you have Uber having all of these employees out on the road, driving, getting in accidents, treating people wrong um, or improperly, you know, just all of these things. There's just a lot more liability that comes with having someone as an employee versus an independent contractor. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, well said on, on, on that. And I think, um, if you could address a little bit, because there was some pushback right on, on this, right, in the sense that obviously Uber and these other uh, delivery type of sort of services through applications wanted to have uh, to be exempted from some of these things. And I think there was some initial exemptions in the law with some entertainment, um, uh, with certain entertainment sort of, uh, of folks, and that I think there was a few other exceptions, but can you talk a little bit about that process uh, if you're familiar with it in terms of um, what the result was when sort of uh, when this sort of referendum was passed later on through uh, through, through a voting uh, measure? Um, I'm not too familiar with kind of the the deep details of, um, you know, what what it all went through. I know that for a minute there. As I'm sure some of you also know, their Uber and Lyft were talking about stopping, just stopping services in California because of that, um, just because it completely changed their revenue and their whole business model. Um, 
so I'm not, I'm, I'm actually not too familiar with kind of the process throughout all of it, but I guarantee that there was a lot of lobbying and a lot of definitely a lot of pushback by Uber and Lyft and those other companies. And yeah, I, I mean, right. but when you really think about it, it makes sense because they've been operating this way for so many years. And then all of a sudden now they're liable for their hundreds and thousands of drivers, delivery people, it just completely changed, you know, their, their whole MO, I would say. Right. Right. And I think the one that, um, uh, then the proposition number had escaped me, but, um, you had just reminded me of it, Whitney, and it's, uh, it's, it was prop 22, but this was essentially to take out, or maybe the better way to say it, would be to add in more exemptions into AB5, which is Assembly Bill 5. So this would you know, add Uber into it, that sort of thing. Um, and so essentially it, it allows those companies still to classify. Uh, that being said, if you yeah. notice when you ride in an Uber or a Lyft, you notice like your charges at the end and it's like, you know, there's a little, you know, California service charge or whatever. So at the end of the day, even if, um, you know, even if you're riding an Uber and there's still no classification issues, there was still some increase in cost. And of course, that always goes back to the to the consumer because yeah. Uber's not going to eat that cost. But I think it's yeah. a fascinating um, situation of um, and again, look, a lot of money was put into the campaign, but I know like myself as an Uber sort of user, you know, it's like it'd be great to not have higher prices, you know, when you're, when you're, yeah. uh, when you're riding an Uber, but, uh, but anyway, just a sort of a fascinating uh, situation. And I, I appreciate your explanation on, on, uh, on some of those things. So now uh, workers' compensation, I'll get into that later. Cause I'm, I'm pretty sure you don't deal with any of that in your practice, right? Correct. Yeah. Workers' comp is its own. It's, it's like completely separate from employment and labor. Yeah. Right. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later, but that's, that's mostly to deal with, um, you know, injuries at work. And then of course, in the sports setting, it's specific to uh, if you're injured while you're pitching or while you're playing any sort of sport for a professional team, you'll usually have coverage. Number one, you'll have insurance usually through the league or the players association, but then you're also going to have, um, some sort of coverage when you're no longer playing. And of course, um, I'll explain, explain this briefly, but when it came to workers' compensation in the sports setting, there was this sort of issue where you might have a player who, let's say they have one game in California, they have the Super Bowl or, you know, one match, right? The, let's say uh, the Spurs travel in and they play the Warriors, right? And let's say a guy gets injured. Well, uh, who covers that workers' compensation? Is it, um, you know, is it the state that he was playing in, or was it the state that, you know, he is, you know, basically an employee of the team or or what have you, right? And getting paid. And there was That's some question, right? And it's like, and there were some states that passed laws that tried to re restrict that, and they would say, well, you have to have you know, and I forget the number, but you have to have 20 games to qualify. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, what was happening is because California had such 
a lenient law on workers' compensation. You had all these players trying to apply for workers' compensation. And, and I say this jokingly, but it was like they'd almost wish they had gotten injured in California because they were going to get more money. But um, but a lot of that's changed and there's a lot of restrictions now. But that's that's workers' compensation in a nutshell from somebody who doesn't practice uh, for me, doesn't practice workers' compensation. Um, but so Whitney, let's let's move on to a little bit more of um, talking about your specific focus areas, which I think are so important. And frankly, the three most important areas in terms of uh, what how people are affected, and that's uh, discrimination and harassment, wage and hour, and then leaves of absence and uh, disability accommodation. Because I think those are the three things that come up the most in terms of employment and mm-hmm. labor law. So maybe if you can kind of walk through, um, obviously, you know, with a confidentiality sort of, you know, peace in mind, because we don't want you to, you know, share anything that you can't share. But uh, anything to do with maybe cases you might be working on and how that sort of practically applies to some of those areas. Sure. Um, so in terms of I mean, I'll start with the harassment and um, pretty much the legal standard is that if the, you know, the plaintiff can show that they were subjected to unwelcome um, conduct that was severe or severe and or pervasive and that um, directly impacted their job, then they are able to file for a harassment claim. And that can either be um, like kind of this for that sort of harassment where it's like, do this, like, you know, either come home with me tonight or you're fired or, you know, come in here and shut the door or you're not getting the promotion. Like that's literally like this for that. Or, um, it can be more of like a hostile work environment in the sense that the actions created a hostile work environment. So like, Every single time I walked down the hall, you know, they would whistle and they would all yell at me. And so I was just super uncomfortable and I couldn't get my work done and, you know, stuff like that. We have that sort of thing happening. Um, And then, you know, if the employee brings that, then it's up to them to, the employee always has to, they have what's called like the burden of proof. So the employee has to establish all of the things that I just mentioned. And as an employer, our job is to kind of poke holes in their story sort of thing. And, you know, sometimes people ask me like, how do you sleep at night knowing that you're defending all these, you know, target and doing all this crazy stuff. And um, cause a lot of the times our cases are in the news because they're, they're, you know, kind of crazy stuff going on. Um, and I just, I justify it really by saying that, yeah, you know, sometimes things happen and, while you may be entitled to $50,000, you're not entitled to 50 million. So calm down. Like, let's, let's figure out what really happened here. And um, then we'll go through the process and um, do conduct witness interviews. We'll do depositions. We'll uh, figure out, you know, what, try to get to the bottom of it, you know, the best we can. And then most of the time we will just, you know, most of the time we advise the client, like, Hey, we should probably settle this out or, um, stuff like that. But a lot of the times it's kind of risky because with these big companies, word of mouth. And even if you sign a comfort or a confidentiality agreement in as part of your, as a part of your settlement, your if your best friend 
also didn't get paid or that's kind of leaning more towards wage an hour. But if you're, you know, your work buddy also didn't get paid, are you really not going to tell them that you got all this money because you filed a claim? No, you're probably going to tell them. And so word of mouth gets out. And so companies are really hesitant to just settle every claim that comes to their doors. Um, in terms of discrimination, so if an, if a plaintiff can show that the um, employer subjected them to an adverse employment action because of one of their protected class, oh, with harassment too, it has to be because of one of the protected classes. And so it can't be like, I can fire you because you don't, because you're a Laker fan and you don't like the Warriors, but I cannot fire you because uh, you're 45 and I only want people who are 35. Like I can't do that. So there, if it's part of the five protected classes or maybe they're six, I kind of, yeah, then, um, then they're more like, they, they do have a claim. So with discrimination, if the employer subjects them to an adverse employment action, which can be a demotion, um, terminating them, it can be taking away their job duties, it can be um, something that has to materially affect the course and scope of their employment. It can't just be like, oh, he doesn't or they didn't choose me and or just just it just can't be they didn't choose me for the new job opening that happened. It has to be because of you were disabled or because you were a woman. And so if the plaintiff is able to show that, then um, they'll have a claim. And some of the things we see are, for example, like some some uh, one of the claims I was working on, um, the employee. I'm not going to say company, but it was a very popular sandwich shop. I'll leave it at that. The company was being sued on the grounds that um, this this one this one kind of seemed a little. It didn't seem very logical to me, but I digress. They the employee was claiming they worked in San Francisco at the San Francisco store, and um, the employee was claiming that because they identified as gay, that they got all the dirty, they had to do all the dishes and they had to do all the dirty work and they had to stay late and they had to do this. And in reality, we look at the job description and it says like cleanup is a part of the job description. Or we look at the emails and it turns out the employee was asking for overtime hours and that's why they were staying late. And so it's just like finding, and also, well, it'll, it'll be, it's, funny sometimes the employees will like in that example they were saying oh my manager did this because I was gay and then I I interviewed the manager the manager's gay I'm like what you know what are you talking about you know so um and they're they're in San Francisco and it's it's so it just kind of goes back to okay well maybe you do get some money but you don't get all the money you think you're entitled to um one of the discrimination or one of the harassment cases I was working on this one is really crazy. We had a manager who was um, kind of acting suspicious around the employee's car. Um, they were on video, looked like they were just like reaching underneath the car, doing something weird. And so um, management brought him in and we're like, what are you doing? He was like, oh, well, uh, I was just trying to put a tracking device on her car. I've been trying the past six months, but it's not working. And we're like, what are you doing? So of course we immediately fire him. And then once we collected his hard drive from, you know, his, his, his work hard drive turns out he had like 200 pictures of 
the employee, like at her house, um, driving down the street, pictures inside her car, pictures inside her purse, pictures of her pay stub with her address on it, like just this really crazy stuff. And so that was a harassment claim. Um, you know, she brought that claim on the grounds that because she was a woman, he did all of these things. And um, although unfortunately for her, there's a statute of limitations to almost every claim. And so you have a certain amount of time to bring the claim. And the reason for that is an example I learned in law school was, okay, say an architect designs a building and, you know, it's fantastic for 50 years, but then in year 51, it crumbles and, you know, five people are injured. Those five people, if the statute of limitation was, didn't exist, those five people would be able to go back 50 years to the architect and sue the architect. Whereas maybe, you know, there's outside factors that start to take effect after so many, some after so long. So that's kind of the example. You don't want people to just do things and then be worrying for the rest of their lives that they're going to get sued by something. So um, unfortunately for her, she did not bring that claim within the statute of limitations. And so it was dismissed um, and she got nothing for it. Right. So, yeah. Well, so leaves of absences are pretty, I mean, employees are, if you've worked for an employer for a one year and worked 1,250 hours, then you're entitled to 12 uh, weeks of paid leave under the um, California law, under federal and California law. And so some employees will go on their leave and then they'll get it extended and get it extended and get it extended. And then at this point, they've been on leave for two years and the employer's like, hey, you know, when are you coming back? And then sometimes we'll terminate them and then they'll file a claim saying that we fired them because they were disabled. So that's kind of how leaves of um, absences and accommodations work and stuff like that. Okay. Now, Whitney, on the as a practical matter, what are the five categories uh, in terms of the protected classes, just so folks just yeah. so we have a baseline? Yeah, I, I think it's five. Let me see. So there's age, race, sex, um, disability, sexual orientation, national origin. I think that's the. I think that's the sixth. Yeah. Right. And then, no, I appreciate that. And then on, on that piece, if somebody were to have, um, maybe talk a little bit about retaliation. So if somebody were yeah. to make a claim saying, you know, I got fired because this, because I complained about somebody, yeah. maybe talk a little bit about that process and what some of the requirements are too, if you can. Yep. So almost anytime there's a harassment or a discrimination claim, there's going to be a retaliation claim. Because most of the time, the reason for the loss, I mean, sometimes, so the employee will be, you know, something will happen. They'll feel like they're harassed. They're, they're going to tell management. And then, I don't know, it, it really is going to depend. But most of the time after they've told management, if they feel, or even some, maybe if they haven't told management, but if they feel like, well, the employer has to be on notice of the protected class. So you can't say they retaliated me against me for being disabled if they didn't know you were disabled. Um, so the employer has to have some knowledge about the protected class. And um, there's kind of two separate categories for retaliation. There's retaliation under the Fair Employment and Housing Act. And then there's retaliation under, um, it's just called section 1102.5. 
1102.5 is what's called whistleblower retaliation. Um, for example, if my company is not following the rules, if, if my company works with hazardous materials and they're not following the rules on how to store those hazardous materials, and I complain to like the federal board or, you know, the health and safety regulation, and then I maybe get demoted or maybe then, you know, I start to have to do the graveyard shift or stuff like that. So that's when a whistleblower retaliation claim can come in is when you um, report activity to, you know, an authority department sort of thing, and then you face retaliation because of that. And it has to be something that was against the law. Um, regular retaliation is just kind of, I complained and then this happened to me, or I complained and then I was fired, or I complained and, you know, everyone, I was, no one wanted to sit with me anymore. And so it became a hostile work environment, something like that. Right. Now yeah. that's really helpful. Um, and it's, sorry, just last thing, it, it can get kind of messy in sense of if someone's complaining about sexual harassment and then all of a sudden they get fired, like that's not a good look sort of thing. So. Right. Yeah. Agreed. And that's such a big uh, industry in the United States, right? When it comes to especially litigation, this Definitely. is like a, a huge issue. Uh, and then I think the next big issue is wage and hour. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, employee misclassification. And of course, Whitney, you can explain this a lot better than I can. But this is where an employer tries to say, um, or an employee tries to argue that they're an employee versus an independent contractor. And it really comes down to um, the employee generally wants more money. They want more benefits, um, you know, that sort of thing. Whereas the employer is saying, you know, no, we're, you know, one, it's about the bottom line, but two, it's about um, sort of how this employee should be classified. Because yeah. I think there's legitimate concern. And to your point that you made earlier, which I thought was brilliant, which was, you know, look, this is a negotiation at the end of the day. You're trying to prove a point. We're trying to prove a point. Uh, but let's get down to the facts and let's come to a deal, you know, short of litigation. So maybe talk a little bit about some of your wage and hour experience. Yeah. One of the really big issues that we have in California is um, overtime payment, minimum wage payment requirement that employees take their meal and rest breaks um, and that they're not interrupted on those meal and rest breaks. So we see it a lot in class actions, which is when one employee will say, this happened to me, but it's also happening to everyone else here. And so on behalf of all of them, I'm bringing a lawsuit. And when they do that, they um, invoke what's called the Private Attorney General's Act. We can just call it PAGA. And PAGA penalties require the employer to not only pay out all of the employees, but it also requires the employer, like as punishment, to also pay the state. And so, and then the employees also get a portion of what's paid to the state. So um, that's where we see it the most in class action lawsuits. And it's a lot of the times it'll be like at warehouses where the employees are kind of required to hit a quota, for example. And so sometimes they'll feel like, oh, I couldn't take my lunch break because I had to, I had to pack 36 boxes and I was only at number 30. And so I couldn't take my lunch break. Um, or we have, we'll also see it in the sense of um, a lot of the times nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities, the employees there work around the clock. 
And so sometimes you'll be, uh, yeah, definitely restaurants too. Um, sometimes you'll be required to take, you can't, you can't, you ha- if an employee is a full-time employee caregiver sort of thing, they can't work 24 hours in a day. They have to take what's called like a rest. They have to, they have to rest for eight hours of the day. And so sometimes they'll claim that they didn't have that ability because they were, they were just forced to continue working. Um, and so, and then also really the, probably the biggest, the biggest issue we see is that in order to be compliant with California law, employees have to take their meal breaks before their fifth hour of work. Sometimes employees are like, oh, I would rather just get through all my work and then, you know, take it later or, oh, I forgot or, oh, um, I, you know, just had to get something done real quick. And so when that happens, like major issues for the employer, because while the employer is not, they can't force you to, you know, they can't shove you out the door and make you take your break. But most of the time, the employee is going to just claim, yeah, I wasn't, I didn't have time to take my breaks. And so that's a huge issue because if you miss a meal break, the employer has to pay you one hour of work, just an additional. So if you make $20 an hour, they have to add $20 to your paycheck. It's called a meal period premium. So when the employer doesn't pay that premium, then they're going to have to pay that premium for every single time. And that requires us to turn over all of our time stamps, all of our pay stubs. It's so much data collection, especially with big, you know, companies like Amazon or something like think about how many warehouses they have, how many employees they have just in California. Um, And so it can get really complicated. We at Littler, we have attorneys who specialize in e-discovery only. So in the terms of wage and hour class actions, we have to make sure that the employees are um, preserving everything because, you know, there's override policies on, I don't have every email I've ever sent. And you know, probably you don't either. And so all of a sudden, when I have to pull an email that happened three years ago, it's an issue. And so we have employee or we have attorneys who are specializing specifically in the preservation of data and documents. We have um, employees who specialize in just analysis of all of the time records and pay stubs and stuff like that. So it can, the class action lawsuits are wage an hour, like money bags for employment for plaintiff's attorneys, for sure. Okay. So, I mean, so it's definitely a big, um, as you know, it's a, it's a big area. Yeah. And then, of course, um, the last sort of area is this idea of leaves of absence and uh, disability accommodation. Can you talk a little bit about um, yep. those issues that, that you come across? Yeah. So earlier when I was just briefly talking about the leaves of absences, Um, When an employee does go on a leave of absence, um, before we can terminate the employee, we have to, it's this thing called engaging in the interactive process. And engaging the interactive process is working with the employee to find an accommodation for them that can enable them to still carry out the essential duties of their job. Um, And so (laughs) that's funny. Yeah. Um, That. So that, for example, I had a case where I was um, representing a hospital and their security guard who they had was starting to have um, like muscle issues in his legs. And so he couldn't walk anymore. And that's an essential duty of his job. Like as a security guard, we need you to be able to be mobile. So when he went on his leave of absence and he came back, 
he was trying to be placed in back in his same position. Well, if there's, but he's unable to do the essential duties of his job. So we offered him an accommodation of, he can work at the desk. He can be, you know, security guard at the desk. He didn't like that because, um, well, one thing you have to be mindful of is you can't offer someone a job that's less pay. Um, you have to, and it has to be kind of like the same. You can't say, oh, I know you were CEO, but come back and like be the janitor now. Can't do stuff like that. Has to be like on the same level, same pay or more. Um, and if that position is not open, if there's just not an opening, then that's defense that the employer can use. Well, we couldn't accommodate that because, um, you know, we restructured or, there was, we hired, I mean, you don't really want to hire someone else and it can get messy. Um, especially if the person is, I'm just going to leave it. I can get messy. So, uh, you have to engage in the interactive process in terms of talking with the employee to figure out what are their restrictions. Um, so for example, the girl who had the tracking device placed on her car, one of her accommodations was, I don't ever want to work with this group ever again. Like, I don't want to be working in this department under our head manager. Well, that's not really an accommodation we could provide because the head manager oversees the entire facility. So in that sense, we were engaging in the interactive process, but we were not able to find an accommodation. Um, and so, yeah, you can, there's leaves of absences you can take for your own personal reasons or to care for like a parent or a child, um, or to there's bereavement, which is, you know, for the passing of someone in your family, their um, COVID, a lot of um, people have been taking leaves of absences for COVID. And yeah, I mean, I've had one of my colleagues even take a leave of absence. And one thing that's nice about working at an employment law firm is that they know, and I know, and you know that I'm allowed to do this. And so don't, don't try anything. Um, but so, so yeah, the employees allowed to take leave of absence. There's pregnancy leaves, of course. And recently that's been also exp um, expanded to paternity leave. So the fathers are also able to take time off to be with the child. And um, I, I believe there's also leave for um, like same sex couples as well. And so there's, uh, there's always new developments in employment law. One thing that we kind of joke is that no matter what, like employment lawyers and tax lawyers will be fine. Like even if everything goes under, we're going to be good. Companies have to work and the government wants their money. So, <laughs> yeah. Love it. Love it. And then um, maybe just a couple more quick questions and then we'll get we'll get you going because we don't want to keep you too long, Whitney, and I appreciate your time. Uh, what about issues with which and this is such a big deal these days. Uh, thankfully, I think more light is uh, being brought onto it, but with sort of mental health, you know, anxiety, depression, does that play into um, the workplace in, in the sense of potential for liability for employers? Uh, definitely. And I probably should have said this at the beginning that all of everything that I'm talking about today is my own personal view. I'm not at all speaking on behalf of my law firm. And um, so I just want to get that out there. Definitely in the sense of mental health, um, mental disability is a disability. It does not only have to be a physical disability. So some of the ways that an employee will show that they have a mental disability is, oh, they'll, they'll 
talk about their doctor's appointments and they'll see a psychiatrist or they'll see a psychologist and they'll be prescribed medication or they'll get a doctor's note that says that they're out due to stress and, you know, stuff like that. So it definitely, definitely that's that we probably see that more than more than physical disability. Um, I would say, yeah. Okay. No, and and a lot of employers want to be inclusive. They want to, you know, be supportive of mental health. I know it's, it's a, something that is being put at the forefront, um, a lot. And so employers want to be on board with that. Okay. Well, Whitney, you've been awesome. And, you know, look, we've talked about, you gave a, a great synopsis of discrimination and harassment, wage and hour, leave of absence and disability accommodation. These are like, you know, the three biggest issues in terms of employment law, uh, you know, at least in this country and possibly across the globe. Um, and then obviously we've talked about at will employment. We've talked about independent versus independent contractor versus employee. Uh, we've talked about uh, maybe one last thing to discuss, which I think is important is covenants not to compete. Mm-hmm. And this is something. So talk a little bit about that in the sense of in California, and please correct me if I'm wrong, for the most part, uh, covenants not to compete are essentially void or, or not valid. Um, but maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I learned about this in law school, actually. I don't, I mean, we include um, we include kind of little provisions in our settlement agreements in the sense of, you know, you can't take our intellectual property when you go wherever you're going to go to your next job. But I learned about this in law school, um, actually in my entertainment law class. And um, the way it kind of works is you cannot force someone to only work for you because it has kind of ties to slavery, quite honestly. But you can, to a certain extent, tell someone you cannot work for ABC. Um, but it, it there's you have to be very careful with how you do it. So you can't, and, and it's different. You can't. You can't say you can only work for me, but I can tell you that you can't work for my direct competitor or, um, but again, there's implications like Jeremy was saying, and we do, I I think the better way to navigate the situation is just to, in the employment, um, you know, offer letter or in the employee handbook, employers will often say all work completed while under or um, all work completed in the course and scope of your employment is property of target or is property of, you know, whoever it is. And so in that sense, you cannot take the blueprint and go run next door sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Kenny, a lot of times, you know, it's funny when I talk to employers and employees, you still see these things happen though. I think sometimes people try to stick them in there and they figure, Oh, well we can, um, you know, we can kind of manage the geography of it. We can manage the years on it. We could say, oh, it's only for LA County and it's only for six months. But California is really, really strict on this. And they, except for, I think maybe one exception under the code, which is for business partners. So let's say if Whitney and I were in business, we started a company together and then we both decided to split. There might be a situation where the court might allow or a contract might allow Uh, for a non-compete in that specific circumstance. Because if somebody's leaving a company, so let's say I decide to leave and Whitney's paying me out or or even vice versa, and we're saying, all right, 
here's your severance package or here's your package to move on. You know, clearly in that circumstance, you wouldn't want somebody to get paid both to, you know, sort of leave or when leaving a company, but then also to turn around and then take all their clients or to yeah. turn around and take all the goodwill that have been created. Right. I think in that yeah. circumstance, we can probably agree that that's, you know, you shouldn't be able to do that. But that being said, in other states not named California, there is, um, you know, non-compete. So it's something to keep in mind. Um, I feel like it mostly, I mean, I feel like it can come up in the sense of, um, you know, in order to prove that someone, well, I, I feel like we will see it in the claim of, you know, interference with contract or, um, and so you, at the, you know, hopefully at the beginning when, you know, me and Jeremy go into business, we've laid out the entire, all the details, anything that we could possibly think of, of what will happen if we decide not to work together anymore? What will happen if one of us passes away? Like, hopefully all of that is in the contract, but when it's not, so when it is, if the person who feels that their ideas or, you know, business was taken, if they can show that um, the, like the, I'll just call it like the, I forget what we call it, but the list of uh, customers, if we can show that the customers who used to be with Jeremy and I, now all of a sudden they're just with Jeremy. If we can show that it was um, confidential information. If if I can show that Jeremy had confidential information that we've intentionally kept confidential in the sense of maybe password protected our customer list. Um, and then we can show that Jeremy now has all of a sudden he's got all these people working for him and um, things like that. Then I'll be able to successfully show that uh I will be able to successfully, I mean, maybe show yeah. that he interfered with business and contract. Yeah, no, good point. Good point. Um, well, Whitney, you've been awesome. Appreciate your time. We've gone over uh, by 13 minutes, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, hope you have a great, a great rest of your evening. And again, you. appreciate you being with us and, um, uh, and obviously look forward to seeing you again soon and getting together. So Definitely. thank you again, everybody, for listening in. Again, this is Jeremy Evans, your host of the California Sports Lawyer podcast, where we talk about entertainment, media, and sports topics. That was Whitney Williams with us, who is an employment attorney out of uh, the Century City office of the Littler Law Firm. This show has been brought to you by Bet Online, and this is via the Believe Network. Look forward to being with you soon. And thank you again for making us the number one sports law podcast in the world. Have a great day. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube